Okay, so I think it's good for us to kind of remind ourselves. Let me get this going here. Well, this is going to happen. Oh, there we go. I was going to say this is going to happen. It's good to go ahead and happen now instead of the sermon next. All right, so we got the three, the three series of seven. Three series of seven, right? I think it's important to remind ourselves of that. The seven seals, which are found in Revelation 5 and 6, they tell us the basic story of Revelation. We went through that. You got the seven trumpets, which are the warning judgments that God was giving the empire, trying to get them to repent, trying to give them time to repent. They didn't repent, and now we are at the next part of the book, which is the seven bowls of wrath. We're at the seven bowls of wrath now, which is Revelation 16. is going to take us for several chapters throughout the rest of the book. As far as Revelation 15 goes, for those of you who were unable to be here, in that chapter we found God about to unleash in detail his judgment upon the enemies of his people. We saw a vision of God's people standing in victory and the seven bowls of wrath about to be poured out. They're about to be poured out on the empire. And one of the main application points we wanted to consider at the end of that was the judgment of God really is designed, especially at this time, to motivate God's people to be faithful to him, to be faithful to the Lord, because we don't want to be on that receiving end of his judgment. We want to stay on the right side of the spiritual battle because when God wins, we win because we are his children. So that's, that's one of the key things that these early Christians would have taken from, from, that, from that particular part of the book. Now, let's go to Revelation 16, okay? And we'll try to deal with maybe the first 12 verses today. Revelation 16, beginning with verse number 1. Revelation 16 and verse 1, John says, Then I heard a loud voice from the temple saying to the seven angels, Go and pour out on the earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God. So the first angel went and poured out his bowl on the earth, and it became a loathsome and malignant sore on the people who had the mark of the beast and who worshipped his image. The second angel poured out his bowl into the sea, and it became blood like that of a dead man, and every living thing in the sea died. And the third angel poured out his bowl into the rivers and the springs of water, and they became blood. And I heard the angel of the water saying, Righteous are you who are and who were, O holy one, because you judged these things. For they poured out the blood of the saints and the prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. They deserve it. And I heard the altar saying, Yes, O Lord God, the Almighty, true and righteous are your judgments. The fourth angel poured out his bowl upon the sun, and it was given it to scorch men like fire. Men were scorched with fierce heat. And they blasphemed the name of God who has the power over these plagues, and they did not repent so as to give him glory. Then the fifth angel poured out his bowl on the, th on the throne of the beast, and his kingdom became darkened. And they gnawed their tongues because of pain, and they blasphemed the God of heaven because of their pains and their swords, swords and they did not repent of their deeds. The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river, the Euphrates, and its, waters, and its water was dried up so that the way would be prepared for the kings from the east. So I'm going to put a few things on the slide for you to, to, to think about as you kind of digest those verses for just a little bit. The chapter right here, in my belief, is the climax of the book. 
we see clearly that God's patience is up. Rome would be punished fully for her rejection of God and the persecution of his people. The chapter is really not that hard to understand. And it may seem that way, but I want to suggest it's really not. It only becomes complicated when we try to put our Western thinking in it and try to make something of every minor detail. When we just take a step back and look at the basic story that's being told, we find one of the easiest chapters to really understand in the Bible, especially the New Testament. The chapter is strikingly similar to Revelation 8 and 9. Did you notice that? This is not new stuff here. The only difference is there's no more time for repentance. It's just that simple. And so let's consider the chapter a little bit. Okay? Verse 1. Verse 1. We find a loud voice coming from the presence of God. I believe this loud voice here is the voice of God. It is the voice of the Lord saying to the seven angels, Go and execute my judgments. Go and pour out the seven bowls of my wrath. Remember, the seven bowls of wrath represent God's complete and full judgment on his enemies at this time. They represent God's full and complete judgment on the empire. They represent God's wrath being poured out. Seven bowls, bowls being poured out on the enemies that we have been introduced to already at this point in the book. Don't forget the enemies. The enemies, the red dragon, the main enemy of the book, who is Satan, the evil one, the roaring lion, the sea beast, the political power of Rome, the earth beast, the false religion of Rome, the emperor worship, and the harlot, which, is, which represents the, the gross and pervasive immorality that was found throughout the empire. We were introduced to these enemies and this order in the book. And as the bowls of wrath are executed, as the bowls are poured, we're now going to find these enemies being defeated one by one. In fact, they're actually going to be defeated and eliminated in the reversed order from how they were introduced. That makes sense. They were introduced, red dragon, sea beast, earth beast, harlot. They're going to go down, harlot, sea beast, earth beast, sea beast, and then red dragon. Now, obviously, all these things mean the same thing. They're all talking about the same thing. But the point is, this is just for to make the story dramatic. It's for storytelling here. And the last enemy that will fall is ultimately going to be Satan. He's going to be defeated in a huge way by the elimination of his henchmen here. But then I think as we get towards the end of the book, we're going to see his final judgment that he's going to receive from God when it's all said and done. Now, before we go any further, we need to, as we talk about this, remember the guidepost. We've got to say some things about the guidepost again. The targeted audience, this book, was originally written to who? Seven churches. Seven churches where? The seven churches in Asia. That was the original audience. People who were going through things that we just don't have to deal with right now. Okay? So we got to remember the original audience. We got to remember the background. What, what was the original audience going through 
during the time of Revelation was written. Severe persecution. They were losing their jobs. They were being imprisoned, losing property. Some were even being executed. We read about a Christian named Antipas, and I think it was Revelation 2, who had been killed for the cause of the gospel. John was on Patmos because of persecution. Paul had already been killed for the cause of the gospel, and many of the apostles by this time. So we got, we got persecution. Now, one more thing. This is very important even here, especially here, with a chapter like this. The time frame. God tells us in this book over and over again that these things will what? They're going to happen soon. He told them that before he told us that. Does that make sense? You've got to really get that because we live in a time where when a lot of people want to talk about the end times. You know, that's a big deal for a lot of religious folks. One of the books I like to go to is what? I had to go to Revelation. They had to go, they had to, go to Revelation and say, Revelation is about all the stuff that, that's going to happen before the end of the world. They had to say, Revelation is about the stuff even going on today, the pandemic, Joe Biden, all that. That's in Revelation. That's what they say. You know, believe it or not, but the times we're living in are not even the worst times this country's ever experienced. You do know there was a time when Americans were killing Americans. You know that, don't you? Think that's worse than the pandemic when you got Americans killing Americans. There was a time when you had world wars. You had two world wars, okay? You had Spanish flu. You had all these other kind of things going on. This is not even the worst time we've experienced in this country. We just get so wrapped up in that because we're, we're living in it. But Revelation has nothing to do with what's going on in our world right now. That would not have encouraged those Christians in any way. If you're a Christian living 2,000 years ago and you're being threatened to be killed by the empire because you don't want to worship Caesar as Lord, hearing about what's going to happen to Christians living in 21st century America isn't going to encourage you very much. That's not going to encourage you to hang in there very much. These Christians needed some immediate relief, and this book was designed to give them that. And that's why God tells them, soon, 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 hang in there. I will take care of this soon. So we got to remember that, okay? The time frame. So now that we, we got that back in our heads, we got the audience, we got the background, got the time frame. Let's talk about the bowls. So let me just go through the bowls real quick, and then we'll try to see if we can make some connection as to what they mean, the bowls. Let's talk about the first four. The first four, they are found in verses 2 down to about verse number 9. The first bowl is in verse number 2. This bowl in verse 2 is poured out on the what? Say it again, somebody louder. Oh, it's on the earth. That's right. The first one is poured out on the earth. Now, what happened to the earth? Well, the earth became loathsome, loathsome and miserable. It was a miserable experience for those who had the mark of the beast. And it was miserable for those who had worshipped his image. Anyone who was in allegiance with the enemies of God, anyone who had bowed down to Caesar as Lord, and they were not faithful followers of Jesus Christ, this was a miserable time for them when God executes his judgment. The earth is not a good place anymore. It's not a good place. 
for those who have the mark of the beast. Remember, the background of the book is it's not a good time for Christians at this time. But notice how things are reversed now. Now it's, it's not a good time for those who have the mark of the beast. Not those who've been sealed by God. Not those who've been marked by God, but those who have the mark of the beast, those who worship his image. The earth becomes a miserable place. The second bowl, verse 3. This one involves God's wrath being poured out on the what? This is the sea. So we got earth. Now we got the sea. The sea becomes like what? Blood. Blood like that of a, a dead man. So you got the sea becoming like the blood of a dead man. Again, when we, when we read about the blood or the sea becoming like blood, what does that remind us of from our Old Testament? The plagues. What was the first plague that God brought upon the Egyptians? Now that was literal. When the, when the Nile became literal like blood, that was literal. We, we understand that. We know that. But it's still interesting how that same idea is being used figuratively here to talk about God's judgment at this time. So you got the earth being impacted negatively. You got the sea being impacted negatively, becoming like blood. In fact, when the sea becomes like blood, the scripture says everything in it died. It all perished. It all perished. The third bowl found in verse 4. This one involved the rivers and the springs of water, the land waters. They're poisoned, aren't they? They're poisoned. And they too become like what? They become like blood. So you got earth, you got the ocean, the sea, and then you got the land waters. All being impacted by God. Now, before we talk about the fourth bowl, let's say some things about what's said in verses five through seven. Because before you get to the fourth bowl, there's some things said in verses five through seven. Now, you remember the pattern of the series of seven in the book, for the most part. There's a pattern. The first four are alike, they're connected. The next two are different. And then the last one is always transitional. So we had the seventh seal transitioning us to the seven trumpets, and then the seventh trumpet transitioning us to the seven bowls of wrath. Now, once the seventh bowl of wrath is poured out, there's no transition. That's the, that's the exception here. This is God's full judgment here. So the first four is similar. The next two are different. The last one is transitional. You got the same pattern going on here, again, in these seven bowls. The same pattern, only the seventh one is not transitional. This is going to be God's full judgment. Now, between the third and the fourth bowls, where we're at now, some heavenly announcements are made. Heavenly announcements are made. So let's, let's, let's consider that. Heavenly announcements are made about the justice of God. What did you notice there about God's justice? What is being said in those verses? I'm in verses 5 through 7. Just look at those verses when we read them. What did you notice there? Tell me what you noticed there about God's judgment. What's being said about God's judgment? Justice there. Righteous. Was you going to say something? Yes. So you said righteous. You said they deserve it. Anybody else have something? True. So 
It said that God's justice is righteous, it's right, and it's true. That's important to emphasize. In case anybody thought God was being unfair here, heaven announces that God's judgments are righteous and true. In other words, God is right in this moment. Now, we know he's right all the time. We understand that. He's right all the time, but let's just zoom in here. God is right in this moment. He's right. These people who are experiencing his judgment, they deserve it. They deserve this punishment. They deserve what is happening to them. Why? Well, the text tells us. Verse 6 says that they deserve this why, according to verse 6. They had done some bad things to God's people. They had done some bad things to God's people. You know, just because God doesn't always directly intervene when bad things may happen to us, when people may persecute us, that doesn't mean that God's not taking notice. That doesn't mean that God's not upset and that God's not even planning on avenging his people. Do you remember when Saul of Tarsus was on the Damascus Road and he saw the, the heavenly vision of Jesus? He heard the voice of Jesus. And one of the things Jesus did is he asked him a question in Acts, in the book of Acts chapter 9. He asked him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting who? Me. Why are you persecuting me? Well, did Saul persecute Jesus personally? Not at that moment. That's not what the Lord is talking about there. Where was Saul headed on that Damascus road? Where was he even going? He was going to throw Christians in jail. He was headed. He was headed to Damascus to, to lock up Christians. And so Jesus obviously took that personal. He says, why are you persecuting me? In other words, when God's people are being persecuted, persecuted, the oppressors are also persecuting him. He takes that personal because we're part of his body, his spiritual body, right? So we see that there. And then remember when Stephen was being killed, being stoned in Acts 7, even before you get to Saul. The only time in the Bible when we find Jesus standing, not sitting at the right hand of God, he's standing there. That's the only time we find that. And why is he standing? Because he's taken notice, special notice. He's, he's impacted personally by what was going on with Stephen when he was being stoned. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. I can't remember what psalm that is, Brother Gary, but that is one of the, one of the psalms. It's a lot of them to think about, but that, that's exactly right. Precious in the sight of the Lord or the death of his saints. And we see that in, in, in Acts. That, that's very good. So going back to verse 6, these people deserve this because God is avenging his people. He's avenging the prophets, his prophets. He's avenging his preachers. He's avenging any Christian that, that had been suffering at the hands of these people. Can you turn in your Bible to Romans real quick? I want to share with you a couple of thoughts here, and I want to hear what y'all say about this, okay? You know, I, I think as Christians, we struggle sometimes really appreciating and trying to acknowledge God's justice. I think that's a struggle for us, okay? I think it's a struggle for us to really appreciate how God avenges his people. That is a biblical concept. I hope, and you don't raise your hand on this because I don't want to feel bad this morning, but I hope you've been reading your Bible reading this year. 
Hope you've been keeping up with that. The wisdom literature is just so rich. So rich. The Psalms are so rich. And in the Psalms, if you've been keeping up with that, one of the things you find David doing a lot of is he prays that God not bless his enemies. Have y'all been noticing what David's been saying? What, he, what has he been saying, Don? What, what has he been saying in the Psalms? Yes. He says, God executed. Execute judgment. Execute judgment that you've already determined against, the in, against my enemies. David prayed that. And that's not just an Old Testament psalm concept. In Romans, the 12th chapter, we find verse 19, where Paul gives a hint of this mindset when he says in Romans 12 and verse 19, never take your own revenge. As Christians, when people do us wrong, we don't take our own revenge, do we? We don't do that. If somebody curses us, we don't curse them back. Somebody hits us, we don't just, you know, slap them back in the face. Never take out your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for who? The wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay. I will repay, says the Lord. And then Paul goes on to tell us how to treat our enemies. But notice how when it comes to people who do us wrong, the vengeance ultimately belongs to God. God will avenge us in his time. In his time. We leave room for the wrath of God. Paul practiced what he preached in 2 Timothy chapter 4. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, look at what Paul said in verse number 14. 2 Timothy 4, you're probably very familiar with this passage. 2 Timothy 4, 14, Alexander the coppersmith did me much harm. Notice how David wasn't the only one who had people doing him wrong. Alexander the coppersmith did me much harm. The Lord repay him according to his deeds. How were Alexander the coppersmith's deeds at this time? How were his deeds? Were they good deeds or bad deeds? So if Paul says repay him according to his deeds, what is he really saying? Avenge me. Repay him according to his bad deeds. That's what Paul says there. And again, I know that makes us uncomfortable. I get that. But it's a biblical concept. And it's what's being found in Revelation. Remember Revelation 5, no, 6. What did the souls under the altar ask God? How long? How long? How long until you execute justice and avenge us? And what did God say to them? Wait. Wait. Don't worry about it. That's what Paul was saying back in Romans 12. Leave it for God to do it. Leave it for God. So, so I think all this connects when we step back and look at the, the totality of the scripture on this. Go ahead. Yes, sir, Brother John. Go ahead, sir. Brother John... That's what Paul is saying, really, in 2 Timothy 4. You reap what you sow. If, you, if, you, if somebody's doing bad, then they can expect some bad. In fact, Paul even teaches that in Galatians 6. And we see that even with David's enemies like Absalom, his own son. Absalom did David wrong. He stole his kingdom from him. And David had to flee Jerusalem. He fled Jerusalem. He prayed to God. And eventually, did God avenge him? Well, providentially, I believe he did. 
because eventually David got his kingdom back, and what happened to Absalom? He was killed. So, so God always works it out in his time. That's the key, in his time. So I, I really appreciate that. So let me just say this, and I'll give y'all a chance to make a comment on that. I just want to say by, in, in verses 5 through 7, okay, God is being praised for a very specific reason, for his justice. His justice is right. He is right for executing this judgment in his time. The people in heaven, those in heaven, are celebrating God's justice, but those on the earth, they're not celebrating it, are they? They're not going to celebrate God's judgment. They're dreading it from what we've seen so far, because what did the Hebrew writers say? It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hand of the living God. So that's what they're going through right now on the earth, at least in, in, in the first century. So I'll pause right there. Does anybody have any thoughts from where we are so far? Anything that you see that you want to comment on concerning these first seven verses? Please feel free to. Brother Don and then, and then Brother Kevin back there. Y yes, sir. Just, just a plug for study of the Old Testament. When you look at, at the people that persecuted Israel, the Amalekites were taken care of instantly. Edom, on the other hand, because they were associated with Jacob, were not taken down until after the Babylonian captivity. But they had persecuted Israel all the way through. God's own time picked and chose exactly when it was necessary to do it. Absolutely. Now, it's always in God's time. We see that with the Assyrians. We see that even with the Canaanites. God didn't punish them until their, their sins were full. So it's always on God's time. So by the same token, the voice coming out from the throne, which began there. Right. When you look at that voice coming out from the throne, from the mercy seat in the tabernacle, it was instantaneous. Right. Eight or five years was instantaneous. Right. Yep, that was. That's it. Instantaneous. Yep, that's good. Brother Kevin, go right ahead, sir. Right. That's a good point. Anyone else have a yes, sir, brother Greg? Then we'll move on. One of the interesting things that we learn through this study of Revelation is what God is doing with that time that he's waiting. He's giving time to repentance. Yeah. We've seen that even to these wicked, evil Romans who were as good as his people, he was giving opportunities to repent. Think about this the next few judgment on Stephen. Because he still loved them. He wanted. Yes. Saul of Tarsus, who was holding the coats. Yes. Yes. No, that's that's man. That's a rich point because, you know, when you think about. If God had wiped the enemies of Stephen out immediately, we, would have, we wouldn't have gotten one of the greatest preachers in the history of the world. 
That's why we just let it leave it in God's hands. Because God knows hearts. He knows hearts better than we do. And, and, and he knows what he's doing always. We just do what we're supposed to do and let God take care of the rest. It's that simple. It really is. So that actually brings us to this next part here, that part where you're talking about repentance. The fourth bowl, this one involved verses 8 and 9, the sun. So we got the sun. Again, you got to think symbolically here, okay? The sun is scorching men. And the, scorch, the scorching causes the people to do what to the name of God? They blaspheme God. They curse God. Now, the key, I think, here so far is verse 9, what Brother Greg was saying. After all of this, and we know this is, the, this is God's final judgment on this empire, but even still, they still don't what? They don't repent. See, God knows what he's doing. He knew they weren't going to repent. And that's why that's it. This is it. They're, even after this, they're still not going to repent. So you got these first four things going on here. Remember, let's remember that. Now let's get to the fifth one real quick. The fifth one involves darkness and pain, 10 and 11. The people who experience this darkness and pain also blaspheme God, don't they? They blaspheme God and they also refuse, the text says, to repent. They still won't repent. The sixth bowl involves the drying up of the great river Euphrates. It should remind you back to Revelation 8 and 9, shouldn't it? When, when the river dried up, what happened? What, what was allowed to take place once the river dried up in the vision? The enemies from the east cross over, and they invade the land. I hope all of this is, 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 is ringing some bells for you. So let's look at it. The seven bowls of wrath are being poured out. The first four bowls, and I'm not telling you nothing new. We've already studied this. Chapters 8 and 9, these have to do with, I believe, natural calamities. God is impacting the earth that he has created in some way. You have natural calamities taking place, and people are suffering. The world is being impacted by God. The water, the food sources, all these different things are, is causing the world to be a miserable place. I believe God is doing this providentially. And then we looked at verses 5 and 7. The judgments of God are righteous and true. He avenges his people in his time. The wicked still refuse to repent after the pouring out of the first four bowls. You get the bowl number five in the text. Oh, I put this on here too. I want to say something about this. Pharaoh. I, this reminded me of Pharaoh when I was studying this. How remember after the natural calamities... And really, when we shouldn't even call those natural calamities. Those are more miraculous calamities. Did he repent? What did the Bible say happened to his heart every time? He hardened his heart. He hardened his heart against what God was doing. And this is similar. These people here at this time are just like Pharaoh. They're hardening their hearts. The idea there is they're refusing to repent. They're refusing to acknowledge the work of God. When the fifth bowl is poured out on the beast kingdom, or the beast kingdom, becomes darkened and men experience much pain. Maybe, and we've already talked about this with chapters 8 and 9, this represents the widespread evil and corruptness throughout the empire, the pervasiveness of sin, and how God is allowing these people to wallow and suffer in their sins, regardless of how you view this, whether you think it's a plague of some kind 
or, or the consequences of sin in a, in a wicked empire, these people still don't repent. They still don't repent. And then the sixth bowl, when it's poured out, you got an army from the east coming through the dried up Euphrates. So now you've got external invasion. Bowl five seems to be internal problems. And then bowl six seems to be external problems. And when we look at history with the Roman Empire, isn't that exactly how they crumbled? From within? <laughs> yes, they were going to be, they were broken up kingdom. So I, I think this is interesting because I think you see how God is promising to bring judgment on the empire. But I think most of this, it's all providential. It's not how you would expect the kingdom to go down, not through one battle or a series of battles, but through a process. It's a process God is going to use to bring down these people. Now, the key here, let me say some things here. The key to this is, is, is you got to contrast this. And listen carefully to me, okay? To really get Revelation 16 to where we're at so far, you've got to contrast this from chapters 8 and 9. You've got to contrast this to chapters 8 and 9. These are the same judgments. If you go back and read Revelation 8 and 9, these are the same judgments we found there. The only difference is there is no third. You remember the third thing? Third of this, third of that. That's the only difference. There's no third here. Why is there no third here? It's complete. Y'all said it. This is it. That's the only difference. It's the same stuff, just no third. God is going to providentially bring down the empire for good. He is going to make sure that his cause prevails, but this wicked cause will come to an end. He's going to bring these people down. He's going to bring them down through natural calamities. He's going to bring them down through war. He's even going to allow them to wallow in their sins. All these things will contribute to God bringing these people down. That's the point. That's the main thing I want you to see. When you read Revelation 16, in fact, you may just want to mark down your Bible. Just remember, write down, contrast this to Revelation 8 and 9. Full judgment. God is not going to do a third this time. He will bring the empire down completely, providentially. So that's the 12, first 12 verses there. And um, I'm getting my second shot tomorrow, so maybe I'll be too sick for the, the next part. Mitch can teach that about Armageddon. No, <laughs> no I don't want to get sick. But uh, does anybody have any final comments about, about what we've talked about so far in these first few verses? We got about a minute or two. I'll be fine. <laughs> uh, yes, sir, go ahead, Brother Don. From a historical standpoint, this takes about 225 years. Yes. Yes. The process that we're talking about. And could I think, correct me if I'm wrong, doesn't Rome, I mean, when is the year they officially go down? Yes, yeah, it's like, it's like, I knew it was, in the, it was in the fourth century. Uh, but it's interesting how they're going to start to even be weakened. You know, it's early as the first century. They're going to start experiencing. Now, there's still going to be an empire, but they don't remain always as strong as they were in their glory days forever. 325 is the year when things really start to downhill. Right, right. Yes. Right, right. Right, technically, right. 
I guess, I guess the point maybe the scripture is trying to make is they won't be that dominant empire for that long. Uh, and, and, and I'll just say this. Any nation of people, kingdom, country, whenever they get further away from God, nothing good comes from that in the long run. Solomon said in the Proverbs, it's a disgraceful thing when a nation, you know, goes against God. So while as Christians, this is why our responsibility to teach is so important. We want to save souls, help save souls, but also we want our culture to get back to God again. Because God's patience is going to run out at some time, even with us, I believe, if we see the pattern of the, of, of the scripture clearly. So let's just be mindful of that, okay? We'll pick up on Wednesday. Oh, Wednesday's a singing. I'm sorry. Next Sunday, Lord willing, uh, we'll, we'll get ready for the rest of the, finish up the rest of the chapter, okay? Thank you.